Well, it's great to see all of y'all today. If you're a guest, I'm David. I'm the pastor. We're so glad you're here. I know my uh, voice sounds horrible, and, I, and I, I get all that. It's just allergies. Don't worry about it. After the 830 traditional service, one of the sweet little ladies in that service gave me some of her homemade special elixir. And if that kicks in in a few moments, we'll be really good. I'll tell you that right now. I know it's crowded, 9.45 service. Listen, if you want a little more room, 11 o'clock, we have a little more room in that service and the future at 12.15 as well. Uh, we're, we're in this series entitled Breakthrough. If you've been coming at all this year, you know we're in that series. And it's really a journey through the gospel of Mark. You know, all, you know, there are four gospel stories in the New Testament, four accounts of the life of Jesus. They're all fantastic. They're all similar. They, they tell the same fundamental story. They have some different perspectives. And Mark wrote in about 58, 59, 60 AD, right in there. And Mark's concern was really for the Gentiles. In fact, in the passage we're going to be in today, Mark has an account, Matthew has an account. In Matthew's account, you can tell he wrote it kind of for the Jews. And Mark tells the same story, you can tell it's kind of for the Gentiles. And uh, telling it from the perspective of Peter. Uh, early church fathers tell us that Mark, at some point, went to Rome, sat with Peter a little bit when Peter was there, and that was the basis for him writing his gospel. And what Mark does, which I think is really important for us to understand, as we approach people, if you're a follower of Christ, as we approach people with the news about Jesus, is that writing to primarily Gentiles, his, his account of the life of Jesus was a breakthrough for people who didn't know anything about the love of God. He, he had specific type of people in mind. He wanted them to experience a breakthrough in their life. Today we're in the seventh of these messages, and uh, it's entitled Breakthrough for the Gentiles, that, that when Mark gives the account of Jesus, for really the first time, really just we're seeing him interact with a, a pure Gentile. Uh, and, and a Gentile who was in her life probably in, undoubtedly a very sinful person. And so what I want you to see in the message today, and, and you know, this is something we talk about all the time, is, especially as an evangelical Christian, as a Baptist, but it's so important. No one is so sinful that Jesus will not forgive them or save them. You've got to believe this. You've got to know in your mind and in your heart that no one is so sinful that Jesus won't save them. So I'm going to begin talking about foreshadowing the Gentile movement. You may not think about it this way, but really Christianity is, is growth, a series of movements, a series of things that begin to happen. And by the time Mark is writing his gospel. The Jews have basically moved on from Jesus. I mean, there are still Jews who are going to come to Christ. That's going to happen. But the Jews have rejected him. And the movement towards Jesus is Gentiles, which is fascinating because it shouldn't have been that way. I mean, Jews and Gentiles despised each other. We hear a lot about Jews hating Gentiles. Gentiles hated Jews. They hated the Jews because they didn't understand how you could worship only one God. It seemed to them somewhat arrogant and condescending that you only would worship but one God and reject all the other gods and goddesses. They knew the Jews despised them and looked down upon them. It made no sense. Here is, here is Jesus, who in just a presentation of things to, to that world, was a, was a Jewish rabbi who was the Messiah, yes, but he, he was a Jewish religious type person who rejected the Jewish religious system. Remember, Jesus rejected that whole system. So it was just this kind of anomaly. Now, why, why would pagans 
become Christians? Why would they leave the worship of all their gods, many gods, for just one? Why would they go to a culture, the Christian culture, that was being persecuted, hated, that was being ridiculed, and, and, and they would suffer that for following Jesus? It made no sense, and it's exactly what happened. And today, we kind of come to a couple of stories that foreshadow that exact experience of moving away from the Jews to the Gentiles. Last week, seeing Jesus once again confront and deal with the religious leaders over their system, we now see the very next story in the life of Jesus, as Mark tells it. Verse 24. Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. Now, Tyre. Now, here's what you need to know about Tyre. Tyre was not in the land of the Palestinians. It was not in the land of Palestine where Jesus was. Where where Jesus did most of his ministry, Galilee and Judea. Samaria was in between. He passed through that, but that's where he did most of it. Northwest of that area was Tyre. It was the old land of the Phoenicians. If you go back to the Old Testament times, the Phoenician area was the heart and soul of the worship of Baal, of raw paganism. Now understand, Baalism, polytheism, the worship of multiple gods has many different forms. When you were in the Old Testament and you see the Canaanites and you see their form of polytheism, which is Baalism, it was a fertility cult. And it, its heart and soul of that religion was the belief in different type of spirits and that you could control and you could manipulate the gods and goddesses. And you did it through the arts, the black arts. You did it through spells. You could manipulate and control people that same way. So there would be, there would be the conferring with uh, witches and mediums and spiritists. That's why you see in the Old Testament such condemnation towards that. Because that's what they did. And this was the home of, of Jezebel over in 1 Kings. Jezebel, who was that godless pagan woman who when she married Ahab, tried to destroy the worship of God throughout Israel. This was the home. He went up there for rest. He went to that area. And when he had entered a house, he didn't want anyone to know of it. Yet he could not escape. It's amazing when you read the Gospels, how many times Jesus is trying to get away from people. Did you ever think about that? He's always trying to get away from people. I got him. I'm with him. I try to get away from people every chance I get, man. I see some of y'all in the halls, and I'm like, Jesus, I'm going the other way, man. I'll tell you, that. <laughs> you laugh, but there are some people who, none of you, don't tell anybody about this because it's another sermon. I run every time I can, man. <clears throat> and so he's there. He can't escape. He can't get away. Here's what happens. After hearing of him, <clears throat> excuse me, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell out of seat. So you have this woman coming. Now, in, in Matthew 15 also tells a story. Here's this woman came. She heard. She comes. Here's what we know. She was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race. And she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now, let me explain all this. Matthew's account tells us this woman was actually a Canaanite, which to the Jews would have been important. Matthew wrote to a primarily Jewish audience. So she was a pagan. This was a woman who on the, on, the, on the scale of Jewish life was the lowest of the low. She was, first of all, a Gentile. But not just that she was a Gentile. She came from the area 
of the Canaanites. She was a, probably a practitioner of sorcery of some sport, sort. She participated in the occult. This would be why her daughter would have a demon. We, we have a hard time understanding the concept of demon possession and all that, and I get it. And I'm always skeptical. I mean, in America, I just don't see people being possessed by demons. It's just, I'm sure it happens somewhere. I just don't see it. I've had people tell me, you know, I've been possessed by a demon. I'm like, no, you haven't. You may have been a drunk. You may have been a drug addict. You may have been a lot of things. Because here's what people don't understand. Demons just don't possess people. The demonic occurs in places where they open themselves up to the occult. That's why when you go outside of America, you see it. I mean, missionaries see it. Sure, I, I heard that. And, but you have to be in a place where the occult in your life prevails. The understanding of this woman is she practiced the occult. Because she practiced the occult, her daughter ended up being possessed by a demon. So she did this to her daughter. So you can see she was on the lowest possible end of any social scale you could imagine the Jews might have. The lowest possible end. Here she comes at the feet of Jesus. Matthew's account said she kept asking Jesus to help her and he ignored her. The disciples wanted her to go away. Now, Jesus is in a house. She falls at his feet. There are other stories of, of women falling at Jesus' feet. It, it, it's a kind of a theme about them and their place in society. If Jesus is at the dinner table, which he's lying on a couch reclining, and then she would be back here, she would have fallen at his feet asking him, begging him, this pagan, this practicer, practitioner of the occult, to help her daughter. Verse 7, and he said to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now this, this does not sound like Jesus. I mean, you think about Jesus, you're saying, what in the world? Why would Jesus, that can't be right. I mean, Mark's writing this. He's looking at Peter. Peter, are you sure? Oh, yeah. This doesn't sound like Jesus. Here's what Jesus was doing. He was taking the position for that moment of a Jewish rabbi, a religious leader. <clears throat> he was acting the part of a traditional Jewish religious leader in responding to her. It served two purposes. One, it was to help her with her faith. But it also was a lesson to the disciples. So he took that response, that part of a Jewish leader, and he said, no, I'm not going to help you. And what he's saying has some insight. He's saying, you're like a little puppy. I mean, so the word dog is a little puppy. It's not the normal word for dog, which would roam the streets. <clears throat> but it was, it'd be like a house pet. He's saying, I'm not going to take the food for my children, from the Jews, and feed them to you, who is like a lowly pet, a small dog. I'm not going to take what's meant for the children to give to the animals. Now, there, there is some understanding of Christ coming primarily for the Jews and the Gentiles secondary, and I get that. But that's not really what he's saying. What he's trying to get through to this woman and the point to his apostles is, is it going to be appropriate for me to take what is for the people of Israel? And give it to the Gentiles. That's the question being asked. Is it okay for me to do this? He's be, at the starting point, he's saying, that's not why I've come. You don't get to eat from the food that I give to the children. So that was his response. Then we see, 
And that was his, his answer. We see her response to that. And it's fascinating. But she answered and said, now she saw some witticism in this. Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. You ever, uh, those of you who have kids at home or grandkids, and you got some pets lying around, and you're feeding the kid, they ever feed the dogs? They ever just take that food? I do that. You put vegetables on my plate, that's going down to the dogs. Dogs won't eat them either. That's the bad part. I mean, so she was saying, Lord, even, even the children will feed the dogs. Now, she wasn't asking for crumbs. We get the idea, you know, that the Gentiles, all they needed was just the crumbs of Jesus. No, 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 no. You're missing the point. What she's saying is this. I'm not asking you to not take care of your people. I'm not asking you to abandon the Jews. I'm just asking you to help me. You see that? All I'm asking you to do, Jesus, is just help me. That was an answer of tremendous faith. In fact, Matthew's account says she has great faith. And then in verse 29, get this. And he said to her, because of this answer, and Matthew says, because of your faith, go, the demon has gone out of your daughter. Jesus didn't speak any special words of healing. He didn't have to go to her house to heal her. He just said, demon's gone. The demon was probably gone the moment she came at the feet of Jesus. We have no idea. He just said it's gone. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed. The demon had left. Now, now probably, a couple of the disciples went to check this out. I can just see Peter saying, yeah, I ain't going to believe this, Mark. So I went. John went. Thomas went because Thomas didn't believe anything. <laughs> we went over there, and sure enough, we didn't go inside because she was a Gentile. But that kid didn't have that demon. This is... A fascinating story. Because here is a woman who by no account should have any connection to Christ. And by all accounts, she would be the last person you would ever think would come to Jesus. A pagan, a practitioner of the occult who allowed her child to be possessed by a demon. And the very fact that Jesus responds to her without anything in return, he just responds to her plea of faith gives an important message to us, which is this. Jesus never disputed the sinfulness of pagan Gentiles. He never gave them a pass for their sin and their lifestyle. He never said what they did was okay. He never gave them a pass for their sin. But he never gave up on them either. Jesus never gave up even on the pagans. It's a fascinating thing. When you think about what this means, we are so quick today as Christians to give up on people, aren't we? I'm, I'm not friends with anybody from this state on social media, but a couple of people, I knew, my wife and, and someone I may have known before. And there's a reason for it. I don't want to see what you post. I don't want you seeing what I post. I don't want to see what you post. But I've seen plenty of things that Christians have posted. I mean, the way Christians talk about some of the people, they don't... My goodness, there's such animosity and anger towards people. Listen, I understand there are certain lifestyles and sins and habits that are wrong, and we need to speak about that. But the way, the way some people talk about other people, you treat them as if 
They're just dogs who don't deserve Jesus at all. Go look at what you write and say about people. Keep that story in mind. We move on. Jesus leaves. He goes back to Galilee, feeds 4,000. Then the next day, he's going to have an encounter with the religious leaders. He has lots of encounters with the religious leaders. One of the key things about this series that I really want you to see is the battle between Jesus and the religious leaders. They completely rejected him. Now, some of the Pharisees will come to Jesus. Nicodemus did, Joseph of Arimathea, there were others. And so there were all, and, and some of the rabbis came and priests came. We've seen that Jairus, uh, uh, Jairus the, the, the temple leader, came. I mean, the synagogue ruler came to Jesus last week. We see that. But as a whole, they rejected him. Now, remember, a few weeks ago, we saw the scribes say that Jesus was in league with Satan, that basically he was a false prophet, a prophet of Satan, possessed by Satan, in league with Satan, whatever you want. They took Jesus, and they basically categorized him with Satan. Now, even though Jesus showed it was totally illogical, that's where they went. They have ignored everything Jesus did. Jesus raised someone from the dead. They didn't care. Jesus cleansed a leper. They didn't care. He healed people. They didn't care. This is how they saw him. Keep that in mind. We come to verse 11. Matthew 16 has a parallel account. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him. So they began to argue with Jesus. They began to press him. They began to have conflict with him. Again, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now, before I talk about the sign from heaven, the word to test him is the idea of pressure to find flaw. This was not a test to see would he pass. This wasn't, okay, Jesus, one more test. You pass this, we're all going to believe. No, they weren't ever going to believe. This was a test to find a flaw and to trap him. They wanted a sign from heaven. Now, we might say, well, he's given them hundreds of signs. He's done all these miracles. That's not what they were looking for. The concept of sign meant at that moment, at their request, at that moment, they wanted him to do something that was supernatural. Now, we might think, well, okay, Jesus, do that, and they'll believe. But that wasn't the point. There's an obscure passage in Deuteronomy 13. And I'm not saying that that passage was behind this at all. But it gives you some insight into thinking. <clears throat> in Deuteronomy 13, it says that if there's a guy who's a visionary, a, a, a false prophet, he's trying to lead you to worship idols. And in the course of doing that, he does something that appears to be miraculous or supernatural as a means to convince you to worship the idol. Put him to death because he would be in opposition to God. So something of that is like that is probably in their mind. What they want to do, since they've already categorized Jesus as being in league with Satan and being in league with the devil, is to get him to do something so that they can say, this is the evidence that he's in league with the devil because only someone with demonic-like powers could do this. This was an attempt to trap him and expose him in their viewpoint. Verse 12 says this, sign deeply in his spirit. 
He said, why does generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given this generation. In Matthew 16, Matthew adds, except for the sign of Jonah, which would have meaning to Jewish believers because Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days and it points to Christ coming to the cross. Basically, here's the thing. The only sign Jesus is really going to give to them is the cross and the resurrection. And you can't possibly believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was of Satan. He said, I'm not going to play your game. So here's what happens then. Leaving them, he again embarked and went to the other side. Jesus laughed. It's amazing how many times Jesus leaves. I want you to see what happened here. In these two stories, something significant happens. Here is Jesus. He is the Messiah, the Christ, God in the flesh. Here are the Jewish leaders who should receive him. They have all the evidence they need from all the encounters and all the miracles. There is no possible way for them not to know he's the Messiah, and they reject him. And over here is this pagan woman who practiced the dark arts, who allowed her daughter to be possessed by a demon, who with the barest minimum of faith comes and trusts Jesus. This is the foreshadowing of what would be happening by the time Mark writes his gospel. That the people who you would think would never come to Christ would come. They would do what Jesus said. They would repent, believe, and follow. See, here's the lesson. Anyone can come to Jesus. They can. We have to believe anyone can come to Jesus. Far too often, we act as if they can't. Far too often, we act as if there are people who are beyond the reach of Christ, that Christ won't possibly save, that their life is too sinful, that they've done too many bad things, that they believe too many wrong things, and they'll never come to Christ. See, here's what we forget about Jesus. Everyone has value to Jesus. Think about it. Everyone. Think about all those people who have the lifestyles you despise. All those people that you get mad at. All those people that if you had your way wouldn't exist. Every single one of them has value to Jesus. Does that mean sin is okay? Of course not. Does that mean that we don't talk about the things that are wrong in the eyes of God? No, of course we talk about it. But you've got to make a distinction between being against sin and being against people. Some of you in your life, you live as if you believe you have no value to God, but you do. If you've never trusted Christ, if you've been rebellious against God, whatever you've done, you still have value to Jesus. You, you have never lost your value. There's a lot of things I possess that lose value. I get that. We never lose value. When I, uh, when I was in eighth grade, I took shop. Now, I was in eighth grade, gosh, 
46 years ago, 47, depending on which time I was in eighth grade, I guess, but it's a while back. <laughs> I have always wanted to be able to build things, you know, to be, to be crafty, you know, to, to make furniture, cabinets, to, to do all this stuff. I've bought tools and I can't, I'm horrible. I can't, I can't get the stuff at Ikea right, you know? I, I, I look at Ikea and I'm like, I can't do that. My, my wife one time bought stuff. And when she bought it online, which she does, and we got it, it had to be assembled. I said, good luck. I can't do that. I had to call Barry, our former youth minister, to come assemble it. I ain't doing that. The only thing I do worse than that is sing. I do sing worse than that. So in shop, man, you make stuff. And so... This one six weeks, our project was we were working with, with tin and sheet metal and all that. So I had to make something. So I made something for my mom. I made a dustpan. It's really cool dustpan. And so, that's not funny. That's serious part. Funny part comes out. So I made her a dustpan. And I took it to her. And she loved it. And, and mom, you know, she had a big backyard. She had lots of pots and, plant, and flowers and all sorts of stuff everywhere. And she took the dustpan and strategically placed it so it kind of fit the motif of that country look with all their plants and all that. It was only later that I realized what she really did was just throw it in the backyard. But that's beside the point. <laughs> so when my mother passed 10 years ago, it's hard to believe, this Wednesday, my mother will have been uh, with Jesus now 10 years it seems hard to think that. I, I think of her still being around. In fact, every time I go to San Antonio, I'm thinking, I got to go see mom, got to go see mom, mom ain't around. But when she died, Debbie and I, then my sisters and her spouses, we started cleaning all the mom's stuff, right? You do that. And my mom has stuff. My mom had bits of money hidden everywhere, all over the house. We found money. In fact, a couple of months ago, my youngest sister had a box of stuff, went through it. She found more money. That's just crazy. It's like my mom robbed the bank and was trying to hide it off from the feds <laughs> so they couldn't get it. It wasn't much money. It was evidently a really small bank, but that's what she did. <laughs> and we found, my sisters found the dustpan. And they're like, what is this? And I said, well, I made that for mom and shop. And they look at it like, seriously? I'm like, well, I was an eighth grader. Give me a break. But I couldn't believe mom still had that dustpan. That dustpan was garbage. That dustpan didn't have value for anyone but my mom. She saw the value in the dustpan no one else could ever see. See, Jesus sees the value no one else sees. You think about that. He sees the value in your life no one else sees. When I see that person that has a life that drives me nuts, when I see the things they do and I hear the things they say, and in, in that moment, I begin to despise them. Do I realize that Jesus sees the value I can't see? That's what makes this story so important, is that Jesus saw in that pagan woman, a value that no other religious leader could have ever seen. And he sees the value in your life. And that's why he came into this world. Because you have value to him. And he wants to save you from your sin. Because you can't do it by yourself. I began the message saying, 
that no one is so sinful that Jesus won't forgive them or save them. That includes you. But what you got to realize is what I preached from the very first message. You still need to repent and believe and follow. Some of you today need to realize you have value to Jesus, but you need to repent of your sin, trust him with your life, and follow him. And you can do that. I hope at some point you will. I hope at some point over the weeks and months ahead, as we go through Mark, you will realize the value you have to Christ and trust him with your life. Some of you as followers of Christ, you've got to quit looking at people and discounting them just because they're sinful. I get it. I know it's sinful. I understand. But you've got to realize they have value to Jesus. And if they have value to Jesus, they have to have value to you. What are you going to do to help them come to Christ? In just a moment, as I stand here and others with me, and ladies, if you would like to talk to another woman, there'll be a woman here as well. Do you need to give your life to Christ? Do you need to experience the value you have in Jesus? We invite you to come. Someone did this in the first service. Trust him with your life. If you want to come and pray to help you with your heart and your struggle to value people, we will. If you have any prayer requests at all, no matter what it is, or if you just want to pray with us for whatever issues going on in your life, we'll do that. But understand this. We need to wake up in this world and realize that Jesus provides a breakthrough, even for the people that we don't think deserve it. Breakthrough for the Gentiles was a breakthrough for you and me. So, Father, thank you for Jesus, that he looked past all the sin and all the failure. He looked past all the faults, and he went to a cross And he took all those sins and all that failure, and he died for it. And then you raised him back to life. And because we have value to him, he'll save us. But we have to repent and renounce our sin. And we have to trust him completely and follow him. So I pray that we'll do that, that we'll experience that breakthrough, a breakthrough that will forever change our lives. In Jesus' name.